I've had the thought a number of times over the last few years, just looking back over my journey, my life, a number of crossroads events that have happened that could have gone either way as far as my dealing with them, processing them, difficulties that instead of being used as lessons could have been used to just create more confusion and bitterness or delicious experiences which instead of cultivating appreciation for how wonderful life can be could have just further deepened me in more grasping and more obsessing and acquiring. Not that those things aren't there. There's plenty there. But at major crossroads, there are certain lessons along the way. And when I've looked back at that situation, it's just with a tremendous sense of gratitude that somehow the journey has taken me to more opening and desire for more learning and exposure to Dharma. There aren't that many people who care at all when they hear the Dharma. Very few people who even hear the Dharma. And then when many do, big deal, that's kind of weird stuff. Just let me go back to my life and my job and my family. Then there are some people who hear it and have the opportunity to practice it. And when we think about it, just how incredibly fortunate we all are to be here, to be practicing, to to be growing. Even though it's hard, I think pretty much all of us feel an appreciation for the direction that our lives are going in. When you think of the millions and billions of people who just don't have a hint of the possibilities to cultivate other aspects of the mind. It's quite awesome. As mysterious as it might be, it just follows, though, the law of cause and effect. And it's not an accident that we're all here practicing, having an appreciation for Dharma. In the teachings, there's the concept of paramis, which are accumulated forces of purity in the mind. That through the course of lifetimes and acts, these forces have gathered strength and they they lead us to happiness, to good circumstances, good relationships, and even more important, the opportunity to hear the Dharma and to practice. And so I'd like to talk a bit about this idea of parami tonight to again further instill in us this gratitude and this uh, 
appreciation so we can cultivate those qualities even stronger in our, in our practice. There are two kinds of paramis. One has to do with purity of conduct. And the other has to do with purity of wisdom. Purity of conduct through our actions create certain circumstances and happy surroundings and the opportunity to hear the Dharma. And we can see directly from our own experiences the consequences of our actions that lead to more happiness and more peace. The consequences of a mind that's filled with peace versus a mind that's filled with hatred and confusion and greed and obsessive power. Even if that kind of mind has the pleasant circumstances, it can't really appreciate what what it's got. Purity of wisdom enables those who hear the Dharma to practice and through their efforts of practice cultivate insight that leads to even higher possibilities of happiness. And both of these paramis have to be developed in order for us to really taste the possibilities of freedom. One, conduct paramis to cultivate the the chance to practice and the other, the wisdom parami, to really understand the fruits of the practice. There are three fields of action that can develop these paramis. And they are dana, which is the quality of generosity, sila, which has to do with morality and virtue, and bhavana, which is the Pali word that means meditation. Dana, generosity, service, that force in the mind that expresses non-greed. It's that quality of being able to let go, renunciation, but even more positively expressed that letting go in the sense of sharing, of giving. It's not only cultivating paramis when we are practicing dana, but it is its own immediate reward. When we're really expressing true dana, true generosity, that is, giving without any payoff involved. Because, one, it feels good to share. When we're giving with that openness of mind, when there's no payoff, there's a sense of connection that happens. There's some happiness that can be experienced by having things, by having experiences and things and possessing them, but it's a limited kind of happiness. There's a greater happiness that I think most of us, probably all of us, know when we're able to share what we have with others. That's the problem of loneliness. 
because there's no one to share with. And there's that frustration. And there's that sense of isolation. I spoke a little bit about this quality of non-greed or dana in the first retreat. I'll just mention a few things uh, this time. I mentioned that sharing or dana, giving things, is really, it's the currency of connection, the currency of quality of loving kindness. Because the things themselves, the objects, just like everything, just like the objects you've seen in your mind or your body, are impermanent. How long are they going to be around? But it's that sense of having them as vehicles for contact with others that really creates that that bond, that connection. There are different kinds of, or different levels of giving in these teachings. Probably you can relate to each of these levels. There's what's called beggarly giving, which is the mind that kind of deliberates before giving and maybe then even the least of what you, what you might need. You know, oh, some of the throwaways and the leftovers. Should I or shouldn't I? Okay, I'll give it. And then you might even have some mm, second-guessing after you give it. Beggarly giving. But it's still giving. It's different than keeping it. And that's useful, even if that's the level that, that one is at, to just practice little by little, seeing what it feels like to give open-handedly. And there's another level. It's called friendly giving, which is giving what you would use, not anything less than what you yourself value. And then there's even a higher level of giving called kingly giving, which is giving the best of what you have to offer. Kingly or queenly giving. And that's a tremendous quality when you give, the, give away the best, not because you're trying to be a good guy or a good woman, but just because there's that appreciation and joy that comes from seeing other people happy and uh, delighted in the care that you have for them. Giving can be done in a prompted kind of way, what's called prompted consciousness, where you think a bit about what's happening and should I or shouldn't I, and then after some deliberation, you give. It can also be done in what's called an unprompted consciousness, where it's just a spontaneous expression of, of the care that you have and uh, delight in seeing others happy. And as you cultivate the practice of giving and it becomes more and more part of who you are and the way you express your your caring, it moves from the prompted aspect to the unprompted. It's It's just a natural expression. And so not to judge the kind of giving that you get involved in, it's just to keep on practicing it. And as I said the other night, as we practice a certain attitude of mind, it becomes strengthened. As far as service, that's another kind of giving. 
instead of objects, it's giving energy and time your being, your being able to be there for other people. And it's an expression of a quality of caring, of compassion, of sympathetic joy and delight in seeing others happy and out of their suffering. It's a very uplifting kind of action. Remember, in, I was in college and I was going through a, an existential crisis for about a month where I just was trying to come up with some answer for the meaning of life. You know, what's it all about? You know, we, get, we, born, we get born, we live a little while, then we die. You know, we do our jobs, we have our relationships, we have our experiences. You know, big deal. You know, so what? It was the big so what in my mind. And I was a very difficult person to hang out with during that time. People, my friends would come up and kind of have conversations and try to, you know, do something. And I'd say, you know, get away. Life doesn't have any meaning. I don't, I don't want to talk about it. And I went through this for a period of weeks. It was, it was about a month, a little over a month. Trying to figure out some answer to what, what our purpose was on being on this planet. And the only thing I came up with that had any kind of meaning was that making others happy or taking them out of their sorrow gave some kind of purpose to being here. And at that time, it seemed to be enough. It still seems to be a very good reason to be here. So it's a tremendously uplifting feeling to know that there's some use, some value that, that, we, that we have that we can give to other people. And seeing the people on this retreat, seeing the staff, the cooks and the managers who are working very hard and not getting, you know, it's kind of behind the scenes. They just, when they do their job really well, it's, it's like they're invisible. So, you know, it's different than, than being up here and everybody looks at you and all. And uh, They're just doing it out of selfless joy of supporting people's practice. And it's so beautiful to see that happen when it's, it's coming from that place of just appreciation, the quality of giving, of service. And as, as we can get into that quality, express that quality of selfless service, we lose our ego when we're in the middle of those acts. We're not recreating that, that experience. Unless we're identified with being the helper, then it's back to square one again. But when it's just that quality of it feels good to support others, you're not around and it just feels so clean. And I think probably all of us have had that experience. It's wonderful to not only have it, but get an indelible registering of how good that is so that it's something that we can, we can value in recreating in our lives. It also takes us out of our melodrama while we're in the middle of it. 
so it's a good way to kind of feel that sense of connection and not get so lost in our own our own trips. I mentioned in the, the first retreat when I was talking about non-greed, about this movement in Sri Lanka called Sarvodia, which uh, means awakening of all. And it's founded on Buddhist principles of dana and metta, loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy, as well as mindfulness. It's founded on the Buddhist principles and on Gandhian principles of, of action and empowerment. And I've been fortunate to spend some time with the man who's organized this movement, which affects over, I think, 7,000 villages in the country of Sri Lanka. And 15% of the population is involved in one way or another. And he says that when you give people the opportunity to serve, there's a tremendous joy that comes that people don't even realize until they're put in that situation of creating with others for the benefit of all. And that is enough of a, of a hit to make them want to keep on cultivating that, uh, that quality in their lives. So it's really what, what Sarvodia does is set up a situation, find out what the need is in the village or the, uh, uh, the area, and then go about showing people how they can fill that need together. And there's a tremendous sense of community and joy that comes from that. There are many ways for us to express service. There's so much suffering as we see, not only in our minds, but in our, in our lives and in the world and so many people in need social action, political action, even just doing your job with an attitude of service and contribution. And in that sense, it's not just going about this daily routine, but coming from a place of of giving to others from that spirit of, uh, of connection. But really, I think the heart of it, the heart of service, comes down to just being there for others, being there for someone, often just listening to them, just giving them a sense of being heard so that they're not floating all alone in the universe and in isolation and fear. Is what we really can offer to others, the bottom line of it, is just our caring and our being there for them. And if we can't touch others or be touched by them in that way, then we're really alone. And it becomes a very um, impoverished, impoverished kind of life. So that's the quality of dana, which not only is a reward in itself, but cultivates this purity of mind that leads to other kinds of happiness. In the second area of, 
um, cultivation of paramis is sila, or morality, virtue. That quality of having an ethical life, having some integrity. And one guideline from these teachings is the five precepts. Not killing, that quality of not harming, not stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct, cultivating right speech, which includes not using harsh language or slandering or lying or gossiping, but just saying what's truthful and what's useful, and refraining from intoxicants which cloud the mind and create more delusion. It's a very useful guideline. Not that they're commandments that you're evil if you do them, but that very simply there are consequences for the actions. Consequences of creating more suffering if you don't keep one of these precepts. More suffering for others, more suffering for yourself. Just a simple karmic consequence, law of cause and effect. Sila is a very essential part of this practice. One way that the Eightfold Path is talked about is it's called a threefold training. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. Conduct, morality, Samadhi, or concentration, and Panya, wisdom. And the foundation of the practice is sila. Because without it, it's very hard, almost impossible to develop a mind that can concentrate. Because unskillful actions create a lot of restlessness in the mind. There's a, a beautiful phrase that, that's, that I like a lot in these teachings called the bliss of blamelessness. When the mind is cooled out and nothing that it's, that it's hiding or feeling awkward about, feeling guilty about, there's a tremendous freedom, feeling of purity in one's actions that can just create a lot of space that allows the practice to deepen tremendously. One time I, I came back from a a three-month retreat. It was my second three-month retreat. And a friend said, well, what did you get out of it this time? He couldn't quite understand what all this was about. You know, you know What kind of stuff did uh, went on there? You know, I thought you got it the first time. Why'd you have to go, uh, go back? You know? It's hard to explain this stuff to people who don't practice. And all sorts of Interesting things happened on the retreat. It was, it was a very powerful retreat for me. But instead of talking about the neat little experiences here and there, that, that just didn't make sense. I just got in touch with the heart of what the retreat was all about. And I said, it's not worth creating ripples in my mind by doing unskillful actions. Really what I got out of it was being a little bit more honest and a little bit more kind. 
It's hard to know that that's what's happening while you're in the middle of the process. But as, as has been mentioned before, there's a kind of purification of the mind that happens just by being mindful. And it translates into just some of the basic things that we've been told since we've been children. Pay attention, be nice, be honest. They're very useful suggestions. But it takes a long time to really get how empowering they are. We need to practice sila consciously, though, not just letting it develop out of the practice. Because even when we see the nature of suffering and we know very well the four truths and the eightfold path, the the mind is still filled with thoughts of greed and hatred and delusion. And there are very few beings on the planet that have no more work to do. I haven't come across many. And it's interesting how we keep on creating suffering even when we know better. Why do we keep on creating suffering? Everybody here knows the Four Noble Truths. And we probably all agree with them. Why do we keep on creating suffering? Perhaps the habits are so strong, deep conditioning, that it's hard to overcome them. Perhaps our intention to change our habits isn't particularly strong because they're, they're familiar and not recognizing in a deep level how we're recreating our suffering. But what's interesting to me especially is even when our intention is very strong to change our habits, when we really have a commitment to doing it, There's that mysterious moment, and I've tried to look at this moment many times in my my practice over the last couple of years. When you see the intention before an action that you know is going to be unskillful and you're going to feel rotten afterwards, when you see it arise, know that it's going to bring disaster and then you just go for it anyway. That what is that mysterious moment? You know? When we're filled with anger, right, and we have it inside of us, and there's the object of our anger in front of us, and we can just feel it welling up and saying, If I say this, this is gonna blow it for the next three weeks, but boom, there you go. Or Desire, passion, around food. How many third desserts do we need to to take before we realize you get a stomachache? Or lust. And then there's that yucky feeling afterwards. When you know that you're deepening the pattern and you keep on going for it. Or laziness, sloth and torpor. You can spend a long time underneath the covers. <laughs> One morning after another, after another, after another, or knowing that the project is there, 
to be done and just kind of sits on your on your desk. We seem to think that we're going to get away with it, you know. When I first moved out of my house, when I was about uh, I was about 20, I moved out and had my own apartment and shared with with a friend. It was so exciting to not have to do the dishes, you know. It was just, you know, it was almost heaven, you know. I could just sit back and eat and just watch them pile up. (laughs) I thought it was almost heaven. But what I saw over the course of a number of months... I'm a slow learner sometimes. The dishes would pile up and they'd be in the back of my mind saying, I've got to get to those dishes sooner or later. And then finally, after a few days, you know, I'd get down to doing them and doing them and they'd be clean. And I'd feel really good once they were done. It took me a while to realize that it felt better to have them done than to sit back and know that I didn't have to do them, but know they were in the back of my mind waiting for me. And it flipped around totally when I decided to go for the rush of having them done rather than that illusion of getting out of something. But sometimes we don't learn, especially when it comes to attachment and aversion and the hindrances. And it can be discouraging when we keep on blowing it, keep on blowing it. Oh, I've done it again, I've done it again. And that often creates a sense of guilt, which is very difficult to, um, to deal with in breaking unskillful habits. Because guilt just perpetuates the cycle. When you feel guilty, then you feel unworthy, and you feel like punishing yourself. And the perfect way to go about punishing yourself is to do the very thing that makes you feel guilty. And so it's this tape loop that goes around and around and around. And probably you've experienced that at times in your life. You know, think about the things that you do that you keep on getting caught up in and feeling bad about afterwards. The Buddha had a suggestion instead of guilt, which has zero value on on this path, rather to look at the situation with wise reflection. And that is, wherever you happen to pick up in the course of the activity, whether it's just the moment that the thought arises to go ahead with the action, or at the beginning of the action, or in the middle of it, or at the end of it, or after it's gone and, you f- and after it's done and you feel really rotten, wherever you happen to notice it, in that moment, see the action and the consequences of it. And really look with care at the nature of suffering and the cause of suffering, how you're creating that suffering. And as you can understand that process a bit more, you see for yourself, you know, this doesn't feel good. 
I think I'll just put this one down. There's a, a quote by Blake. He says, Those who enter the gates of heaven are not beings who have no passions or even have curbed their passions, but those who have cultivated an understanding of them. And so, it's not to set yourself up to be a perfect saint and think that anything less is, uh, is unacceptable, but just to work on understanding the nature, how we keep on recreating suffering. And taking sila as practice involves a few different elements that can consciously be developed. One is the quality of restraint, which is a very empowering factor in the mind. That is, noticing the intentions, noticing that mysterious moment, having the space to choose, and then just seeing what happens when you don't go by it, go into it. That restraint to just say no instead of acting, acting on automatic pilot, and giving in again and then feeling lousy. And Joseph calls it a conservation of energy because it takes a lot of energy as we keep on getting tossed and turned by all the desires and aversions that, that come around. It's exhausting. In the Tao Te Ching, there's a, a saying, he who stops or knows when to stop will not meet danger. If we can consciously practice restraint, we have some real choices in our life. We're not just acting stimulus response. And that's what real free will is about. I came across um, an article a couple of years ago that talked about overcoming addictions and it, it seemed to make sense to me. And since we're all addicted to our desires and, and aversions, I thought I'd just share what seemed to be the way that people can overcome, break their habits. And this is written by someone who worked with uh, alcoholics and, uh, and drug addicts. He said that the first thing that needs to happen to break a habit is to have an accumulated unhappiness about it so that it starts getting to be so much of, uh, of a discouragement and a cause of pain in one's life that one is getting hit with it each time and sees that, that pain. And that leads to the second step, which is called the moment of truth, where one sees very clearly that it's not working that it's just dooming the person to more, more pain and suffering. And in that moment of truth, there arises a certain commitment to break the habit, to work with it. And after that, developing some routines and some skills to change the patterns, to just have that sense of restraint and to have different 
different possibilities when the when the situation is uh, is encountered for addicts one of the main things is to remove oneself from the environment that creates that but to change the patterns that uh, that lead us to getting lost in the habits again and as as one is able to change the pattern just drop by drop just one encounter at a time after a while there develops what in this article is called changing one's identity so instead of thinking of oneself as someone who always does this and always blows it always goes for whatever rather the new identity is someone who used to do this someone who has difficulty perhaps in uh, with the problem but seeing oneself as no longer being caught up in that problem and acting on it each time and that changing one's identity you know as in say aa from being an alcoholic to being a recovering alcoholic someone who used to be you know caught up in it even the, the the fact that you're recovering is an acknowledgement that there's always the possibility that you can be caught up in it but that now you've committed yourself to not being caught up in it and so changing one's identity and self image and then the last part of this process is dealing with relapses that if you happen to blow it that there's a support system around or as you start getting pulled into the unskillful action there's a support system around that can uh, that can help you keep that new identity of being someone who is working skillfully with this predicament and it also takes a quality of non-judging non uh, cultivation of more guilt so making it a practice cultivating this restraint it takes restraint it also takes commitment intention to change and it takes a real resolve that as the situation is encountered it's not acted on and drop by drop and there's the image in the the buddhist teachings that probably a number of people have heard of a a bucket underneath a a faucet you know, little by little each drop doesn't seem like much but after a while the bucket gets filled we create habits and we either can create habits of discipline which is empowering our ability to cope with situations or indulgence which just reinforces the habit of being subject to the desires and and no power over them besides that sense that feeling of satisfaction when one is able to bring one's life into harmony and cultivate a real sila a real feeling of integrity and and ethics it also cultivates the paramis for liberation and so it's valuable on both counts to really pay careful attention to to that area of our lives mm. 
So dana, sila, and the last area is bhavana or meditation, which is what we're doing here. It's a kind of parami that's cultivated, this purity of wisdom, that leads to real understanding. The mindfulness that we're cultivating, as has been said, purifies the mind so that certain factors are brought into into being and balance that can lead to real awakening. And also, to some extent, in the meditation practice, we're cultivating, to some degree, dana and sila. Dana is cultivated in each moment of mindfulness where there's non-greed, when there's an openness of mind. And sila is cultivated by seeing carefully the nature of desire and the cause of, des- of, of suffering being that desire. And it brings one into a natural harmony. And also, as we're doing the practice, we're developing the qualities of restraint, not grasping, not condemning, noticing our intentions more carefully, and bringing some discipline into our lives. And so, it's very powerful to do the sitting practice, to cultivate those other aspects, those other kinds of paramis, But sitting on the cushion is only a part of practice. There are many Dharma friends and even spiritual teachers, many spiritual teachers, who are caught in much unskillful action. And that just leads to more suffering for themselves and for other people. And as I said, until you're fully enlightened, there's still ignorance in the mind. And there's still attachment and aversion until the third stage of enlightenment. And again, there are very few people around who've, who've gotten to that place just yet. And so we need to acknowledge where we are and just work with integrity on purifying our, our lives. So we all need to be aware of the ways that we can be more aligned with the truth and have our lives an expression of our practice, not just the time that we put in sitting meditation. There's a, a saying, the Dharma protects those that protect the Dharma. And it would be very limiting to think that we're protecting the Dharma by just watching our breath and sitting cross-legged. When we're out in the world, that's really the time to put our, our meditation into practice. And when we're living the Dharma, we're not only feeling in harmony, but we're cultivating the forces of purity that lead to the end of suffering and genuine freedom, liberation. We have some time perhaps for questions or discussion. Judgment and discrimination. Judgment and discrimination. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. When I looked at that judgment versus discriminating wisdom, it seems that the quality 
that judgment has an extra charge on top of the, uh, the activity. And so it might be, instead of just, I'll avoid that person, it's, I'll avoid that person because they're rotten and this and that, and a whole lot of extra emotion. So you might just listen to the tone of the message that's coming through. And if there's a lot of this finger-pointing and harshness and, and tension, that's different from just coming to a place of, of centeredness and seeing what works for you and what doesn't. That's a, a good question. Did everyone hear it in the back? <coughs> you have to really be sensitive to um, to what your needs are and what your capacities are for giving and not pretend that you are in a different place than, than where you are. And if you give and afterwards have a feeling of regret or... Um, um, martyrdom or like that, that's not so useful a kind of giving. It's giving with a real sense of joy or a sense of consciously practicing. You can do it just as an experiment with prompted consciousness, uh, that kind of, of giving where you say, what will happen if, you know, if I give this? And just see what that's like in the mind, but not not to set up some unrealistic goals, but just if you can come from a place um, that wants to go for the joy of giving without setting up some kind of image or expectation of, of who you are or who you're supposed to be. Because if you don't do it that way, it just leads to a lot of resentment and contraction. And then the next time that opportunity comes, reluctance to give. So it's little by little just honoring where you're at and, and giving from that place. So if you start feeling like you're being taken advantage of or uh, being the, the sucker or... Uh-huh. Or that somehow your giving isn't appreciated and, and it's not reciprocated to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you shouldn't need reciprocation, but it doesn't seem like it's always going to work. Well, that's, that's an interesting place to look at and see if you're giving with a payoff in mind. If, you're, if there's a hook at the end of the giving, when if, if it's not met, there's going to be some frustration. Uh, and just to investigate that quality of giving and just to be really you know, a bit more honest with yourself that you're doing it for, with that motivation in mind and then 
and see if you can just practice giving just for the just when you feel in line in alignment with the giving so that there's not a kind of uh, that kind of payoff because it's a setup for your own suffering if you're if you're looking for something at the end of it and you also need to honor your own your own boundaries what you're willing to give because otherwise people can just expect oh well I can always come to that person you know and uh, and kind of take you for granted and so it's really respecting what what your needs are and what your capacities are to give Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you're aware of the fact that it might be called beggarly giving, is it still worth it? To mm-hmm. Right. I never much liked that word beggarly giving. <clears throat> it's just uh, the way it's written in, in the teachings. It doesn't resonate with me. It just kind of... Uh, it seems that it's useful to do it, it's very useful to do it, because... I know there's the story, I, I don't know if I have it straight, if I remember it straight, about the man who offered the food to the monk and then sort of had second thoughts and maybe I shouldn't give it. Right. He meant life, he was born. Somehow, we all could be together, enjoy it, or we all Right. Well, the fruits, of, the fruits of his action of giving were tremendous wealth. Uh, and then it wasn't... Hmm. Just on a practical level, okay, it seems that it's very worth it because if, the, if it's a choice whether or not to give, the act of giving itself is an expression of letting go. And in that... In that act, if you if you see afterwards, you see the whole process, and you see afterwards that you know you probably won't miss it in a week or five minutes later. Little by little, you're cultivating that quality of doing it. It becomes easier to do. 
And if you don't take that opportunity, then you just recreate that attitude of, you know, well, maybe I'll need it. And, and you don't get the opportunity to, uh, to cultivate a different habit. That's part of the process. We get the impulse. There's contact with a particular situation. You know, the eyes see food, and then the next, the next part of the sequence is a desire or a craving, and then there's the impulse that the mind sends to the body to go up and, and get it. You, know, you just look at the contact and the feeling of pleasant. And at that time of just noticing as pleasant experience, pleasant sensation, and the desire that's there in the mind, you're not feeding the desire, you're just being mindful of it. You're not feeding it by, by grasping after it. So just to notice that sequence, that, that's really, that's the prescription that the Buddha had for, for freedom, to see how desire arises when the sense, sense doors make contact with objects and then to have the possibility of not acting on them. So it's really valuable to keep on investigating that. Okay, it's just about 8 o'clock. Um, there's one announcement. There are some people who were scheduled uh, to leave tomorrow and uh, please check out with the managers uh, before you go. Um, and that's any time during the retreat. If you're leaving, please just uh, check in with the managers before you leave. Okay, and uh, we'll have the groups of the people who've been here for five retreats. Okay. Right. People who've uh, just come for this last uh, 10-day retreat and who've been here for, who've done five or more 10-day retreats, and please stay. And other people, please continue with the practice and take care. You know, this is, this is really um, where the juice of the, of the practice, all the, all the fruits of, of the effort starts to, uh, starts to be tasted. Because you put in all this time to, to develop some quietness and some, some awareness of mind. You know, rather than getting through the last few days, really seeing how much there is to discover just with that sense of adventure and excitement. So please keep with continuity of the practice. Um, Come to the sittings. uh, Stay with the schedule. Use that as the jumping off point uh, and then just see how much there is to explore. Thank you.
Again, this is partly just a check-in time for you and perhaps a little bit of extra support considering that you've done as much practice as you have as a group. The retreat feels quite good to me and I know Jamie also has expressed that especially through the last days of interview groups, really getting a sense, even though most of you have only been here for six days, not even a week yet, of things getting much quieter and um, with their ups and downs, the retreat uh, becoming a more fruitful and uh, deep place of practice. Um, I had two things to mention tonight and then see if there's any topics or concerns that come from you. The first is something that uh, I don't know who came up with, but Jamie said it to me and I, I really appreciate it a lot. Two nights ago and spoke of the spectrum of practice from that, which was oriented towards strengthening concentration in a very microscopic and uh, precise kind of awareness. And on the other uh, direction of that spectrum, of more of a rhythmic and open attention, which simply notices the processes of experience and sees when we get caught or attached and how to not be so attached. Someone came to Jamie and through some, in any case, expressed it as saying that one way to see it was that one side of that spectrum was a more scientific approach to practice and the other side had more of an artistic or poetic flavor. That one way is a very precise and careful analysis and the other was a more um, intuitive or uh, um, receptive uh, relationship to experience, which is a very beautiful expression and doesn't say that science is better than art or or, or art better than science, but just speaks to both different aspects of each of our own being and different times and cycles in our life and our practice. So, the other was just to ask you as a group to consider for a moment, what are the places in your own practice which are the most difficult for you to be mindful of or aware of? Where is the place? It can be certain activities for people, like eating. It can be certain mind states, particular emotions, anger, sadness. It can be uh, or certain thoughts, like creativity or, or uh, other kinds of planning. Uh, for some people, it's difficult mostly to deal with physical pain. But what is the place in your own days of practice here? For some, it's the schedule itself or sleepiness where you find it most difficult to be aware. Just curious if anyone even wants to volunteer. The fatigue. What? Fatigue? When I get to the fatigue so is that late in the day usually? Now. Uh-huh. Now. At this I've, point. I've been putting in Tiredness. effort all day mm-hmm. being concentrated and I get to the place where Enough. Turns into soup yeah, instead enough. of. Uh huh. It's like I can't work with it anymore. Mm-hmm. For other people? The thoughts that I have of uh, kind of regretful thoughts. 
regretful thoughts of things from the past. Mm-hmm. Others? Planning and creativity. I've done ballets and operas and written. I understand. Other people? Evelyn? I've been working on getting rid of the tension with the effort. So it's how to be soft without feeling guilty. Others? <clears throat> Again, a little bit like regret. So it's when you reach places that are quiet and then it fills itself up somehow. So desire and fantasy is the hard one for you, the place where you lose it. Uh huh. So, some kind of self-consciousness of how you look. And I can notice it arising, but the contours of it, and the kind of rapid impulses in the body and the mind. When I feel discouraged and down on myself, it's it's impossible to de-identify with that. So getting getting lost in that sense of discouragement and then the doubt and I I can't do it and then believing that in some way. The whole thing. thing. (laughs) Lonnie. Uh So a different flavor of doubt. Am I doing it right? I'm doing it. I'll try it, but is this the right way? Mm -hmm. Eric? Not just fatigue, but also what we call sinking mind, where, where the mind, there's a kind of flatness and the, and the practice becomes very mechanical. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to work out of that somehow. Uh, um, improvising music. Uh-huh. Are you a musician anyway, or is this, is this your main musical arena? <laughs> <laughs> So there's a kind of sweetness in that, and uh, it's a little bit like creativity in some ways. Uh-huh. 
trying to figure out which is the appropriate next practice to do. So getting silent, a little bit like what Judith said, getting silent and then having fear or something come in and and fill some of the space and learning to work with that emotion without getting lost in it completely to keep it in some some measure uh, where you can be aware of it and not have it overwhelming. The gremlins are waiting as you get quieter. The dragons get fiercer as you get closer to the inner temples. Sometimes, but also sometimes what happens is that in fact you get a greater sense of your ability to be mindful, of your ability to be with even quite intense experience and have a kind of balance with it. And that's a tremendous sense of strength and well-being that can come over time with the practice. Uh, anticipating the future. Anticipating the future. Planning or just... Ex- of what might happen. Uh-huh. It's so interesting. and uh, Without saying anything that anyone should do about it, it's a lot like listening to the the ten hindrances, not the five. It's the five. There's sleepiness, doubt, desire, aversion, and restlessness. And in, in kind of concert with that, there's creativity and music, and there's silence, and there's uh, um, regret or, or things from the past, and uh, um, trying to figure out or planning what's the appropriate thing in practice. So it's the five hindrances plus five in some way. Except for the periods of time and practice when the mind is very silent and strongly concentrated, and those come in cycles, not for everyone or at every retreat, and even when they do come for certain periods of time, the hindrances will be present. And they're there until, again, some very high levels of uh, enlightenment unexperienced by any of those uh, of us teaching here or (laughs) most of the people that I know as a matter of fact. And so somehow our learning to work, each one of us, it's really like listening to the flavors of people's minds. These are the difficult sides. Another beautiful question to ask would be, what is the most delightful moments and the most conscious things that happen in your meditation. And then there would be chocolate and strawberry and rainbow and raspberry and so forth. But these are the ones that come where each one of us has through our habit um, in some way uh, difficulty where we get lost or caught or lose the sense of awareness. 
And so they are, each of them first, a very fruitful place to work. It's not a bad thing at all that they come. They're one of the places where you will really learn about desire. That's a place you can really see how sticky it is or how powerful it is. Or really learn about um, the past, how mind creates memory and remorse or regret or the future. And how to unhook yourself from it somewhat. And it's not to say they won't still come, the creativity, the music, the, the regrets, the sleepiness. As long as you're practicing, except for those periods when it becomes very silent for certain, certain smaller segments, they will be present. And so they become part of the, the juicy and interesting thing in practice. How can I learn to relate to that? Be kind, really keep your, your heart with these things. Cause they're, and see them as a, as a place of discovery. It's, a, it's not that you need to even get rid of those difficulties, although sometimes one can abandon them, but they're a place of great interest if you can really work with them, pay attention, learn about them a little bit more. So I, I appreciate hearing them and appreciate that they're, that they're a, a juicy part of practice. There are questions, concerns, things that come up. Mm-hmm. Today starts out with energy and everything that I have to do with this. It takes my mind, concentration. As the day goes on, it dwindles and dwindles. And I find my meditation practice, during, particularly during this retreat, it's as if the morning, the, 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 if they're perfect. The first sitting and the second sitting are perfect. Mm-hmm. And as the day goes on, it wanes down. And at the end, at the end of the day, I really struggle with it. And I keep saying, now, don't follow this pattern. That happens every day. Different, different ones of us will have biological rhythms and times of the day when there is naturally more energy. For some people, the morning is alert and the evening is quite difficult. For others, myself being one of them, mornings are not a good time. And as the day goes along, my energy builds and my awareness gets stronger until quite late at night. It's interesting. I remember being not long ago um, in, in Massachusetts. I was in therapy, in Reiki and breath therapy, with this wonderful old man who'd studied himself with Reich a lot and was as well an analyst trained at Harvard. He was quite a special teacher. And the only time he had available for them, for me, he had a very busy schedule, was the early morning. And I said, oh, that's terrible. I mean, that's not my time. I have no energy and, and I don't like it and so forth. And he said, oh, good. You should especially come in that time because that's when your defenses are down <laughs> and I can really, we can really get somewhere. And it was very interesting. I would go in and I didn't like it, but he was right in a way. There were things that I could learn at that time that I might not have been able to learn when I came in after a whole day of running the meditation center and kind of being the boss of my life or so so thinking anyway. And in a way, it's beautiful that you ask because it again speaks to the spirit of these hindrances. That was a place where I learned a lot just as these things which seem difficult to you and are in fact can also be a place where the, where you're, the greatness of your heart, the ability to to love more, the ability to let go in a deeper way, to become more fearless, whatever it happens to be, or the experimenting of learning how to open in some new way 
is really possible for you. So that's nice. Last question for tonight. Um, I've been pondering this question all day. Perhaps you can help me read through it. I've been able to see how, in fact, everything does just arise out of nothing and fade away. And given that, do we really make choices? Is, is there any choice? Is, yes. Is, did, you know, have I made choices in my life or has it only been that the next thing arose and I just, you know, was that's a very deep question what got us to this retreat well we got the brochure the inquiring mind and we'd done a previous retreat and someone told us about retreats before we had ever done one some person we met and we met them because we went to a particular a town to live and we lived there because we went to a certain university or college and we went there because our parents or our high school and you go back and you see that it's all cause one thing and it looks like there isn't any choice at all. And yet at the same time, it comes late in the evening and you say, am I going to sit the sitting or am I going to go sleep? Okay. Has it already been chosen? I think all that... I don't know the answer because it's really, it's a very deep question and it's really multiple levels. On some levels it seems all conditioned and one sees that. And on other levels it appears genuinely that we have a choice. Um, the best that I could say is act as if you have a choice. Choose that which is skillful, which is wise, which is beneficial, which seems to bring greater inner peace or inner strength or uh, opening of your heart and your mind. <coughs> Pretend that you have a choice. One of my teachers, when asked a question similar to that, said, Pretend that you're enlightened. He said, Just act as if you were enlightened. Pretend it. <laughs> and if you do it long enough, you never know, maybe that's the way that you will end up. So I realize I haven't answered your question. Can't help you, sorry. Okay, maybe it's all just pretending, but might as well pretend a good dream in it anyway. Okay, again, the retreat feels very nice, and I know from talking with a lot of you that with its major ups and downs and so forth, uh, still it's really settled a lot. And this is a very fruitful time the next two or three days to work. So please stay with it. Um, whether in a scientific way or an artistic and a poetic way, you can, or both, you can do scientific painting and um, <laughs> poetical investigation as you like. But but really be continuous and and pay attention to those things that you mentioned because like they're, they're they're the seeds of actually a lot of strength. Gurdjieff once said that the things that we do easily and well that we think is our great strengths are often not so in the places that we consider um, our difficulties or our weaknesses can often turn to be our greatest spiritual strength and gift. Because the, the former, the ones that we think we're so good at, are more associated with our sense of self. And these others are a place where you can really learn what it means to surrender or open or let go. So please continue. Thank you.
So you've been here for 18 days or 17, something like that. It's actually a pretty long time, isn't it? (laughs) Probably some hours seem endless to you. I don't have any particular uh, thing to say, but just to be receptive again tonight if there are concerns or topics, anything that comes up for you, please. Yeah. What day is it today? Today is Saturday. And the retreat ends Tuesday morning. So we have Sunday and Monday. And then Tuesday morning will end, finish. I used to be concerned when I went to do long retreats as a monk that I would miss a lot in the world. I like to read the newspapers and all of that. Then I started to go longer stretches a month or a couple of months without news, then a year. And a year passed and then I learned what had happened in the news. There were only two or three things that really happened. All the rest of it kind of was the filler in the newspapers. There was a war that started here, maybe, and one that ended there, something like that. Someone was born and someone died. In some ways, it's really a, a unique and special thing to step outside of time as you have for this retreat. Topics, concerns. Please. Welcome. That's nice. You know, especially because you stayed longer, two more days of practice out of 20 seems like you're getting near the end, perhaps even more than if it were a week or 10-day retreat for you. And in some ways, it's true. Um, And you may see some of the planning mind and all of that happening for you, some of you more than others. Um, still stay with it. Be gentle and stay with the schedule. Some of you are still quite in the midst of a deep meditation process. Honor that. Another day or two can be very rich and valuable for you. Some of you may have more of that planning and thinking coming in, in which case you can just observe that and see the way the mind creates the world again, all the little blocks of I'll do this and I'll be that and I'll arrange that and we build our castle out of all of that. So you can observe that and learn from that as well. Please. nice. There's not a lot to add when you come to a kind of balance. There's not much more to say. There's plenty to do, however. 
sitting, walking, eating, sleeping. Well, I think you're all wonderful, and it's been it's been a very good year here, especially considering we didn't know how we'd do it with just two of us, and whether this way of using old students and so forth would work out. And mostly, the feedback has been very positive. Um, but even more deeply than that, it's been a great crew of people sitting, and uh, a lot of sincerity and a lot of learning, a lot of opening. Really good. As deep as any of these that we've done for 20 days that I can remember. So maybe that is enough for right now. Thank you all a lot. Intending to stand, swaying, standing up. Practice just never ends. Turning off the microphone. Mm-hmm.